I'm Nareet Ben. Welcome to Life Deconstructed. Yael Levy is an Emmy Award-winning journalist and filmmaker whose work has taken her deep into some of the biggest events in our lifetimes, including the aftermath of 9-11 in New York City and the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. She's directed independent documentaries, and her latest being shot right now is called The Last Protest. She also teaches media ethics, two words that these days don't seem to go together quite as often. I'm catching up with her in Tel Aviv in a sacred window of time when her two kids seem to have gone to sleep. Yael, thanks so much for being with me. It's great to see you. No, wait. First, I got to start off with, that is the best intro I've heard in a while. Thank you. I sound amazing. Pleasure. Um, well, you are hard to distill. So that was my my quick one. Yeah. Um, about the, you know, those two kids behind me, let's hope they're asleep. If not, we're going to deal with it. Worst case, people hear some screaming in the background. People are used to it these days. It's fine. I'm not worried. So actually, I mean, on that note, you're speaking from Tel Aviv, where things have definitely not gone back to normal yet, to say the least, for whoever remembers what normal is. I mean, how are you guys holding up with work and life and children um, I, I and think, sanity? And yeah, the perfect example of, uh, remember that book, um, uh, or that notion of, you know, you can have it all. First of all, we knew that was not true before Corona. And now with two children as an independent freelance filmmaker, boy, am I living it. You know, I had an argument with my mother today who kept telling me she's an 85-year-old Jewish-Israeli woman who was born in Tel Aviv in 1935, and she told me to not complain. Uh, but I, I think we, we've gotten to the point where it's okay to complain. Yeah. Uh, it's not easy. <laughs> it's not easy. Yeah, I think every day, I mean, the biggest attempt for everyone is to try to see a light at the end of the tunnel, to try to stay positive in one way or another. But obviously, it's not at all realistic to do that 100% of the time, especially not this far into it. So 100% of the time, and, and we're talking on, you know, you and I are speaking um, through the second um, lockdown in Israel. And uh, I keep thinking what you asked me about my children. I don't know what this will do to my children. Yeah. Um, you know, my, my six-year-old speaks of Corona as, as, as a permanent part of his life. Because in many ways, um, you know, it's taking a bulk of his life. It's a big percentage of his life. It's a big percentage of his life. Yeah, you have you know, young kids, seven months is like an eternity. Yeah. Uh, Although it feels like an eternity for all of us right now. In, in many, many ways. Well, let's, let's put all of that exciting, uh, uplifting stuff aside for a moment. <laughs> so I can go back with you way, way, way back before there was any talk of a pandemic your childhood. I know you were born in the U.S., raised in Israel. And I'm wondering if just as a sort of, as a young person at whatever age, if you remember yourself as one of those people who always knew what they wanted to do or had no idea? Um, No. I have to say I had no idea. I had an inclination that it would have to do with writing. I was an obsessive writer in high school. I very much, you know, I I was born in, in, in the States, grew up in Israel, but I'm the daughter of thespians. I'm the daughter of, of a singer and an actress. I knew, first of all, I knew I didn't want to do that. So it started off by elimination. And that was the one thing I didn't want to do, but I also grew up in a very dramatic, um, outspoken house. Mm-hmm. I channeled it into writing. I did fall in love with film somewhere around, I'd say, 16 I was one of those weirdo, you know, film, you know, buffs um, sneaking out to see what was it, Blade Runner, 
um, on a double show in, in, in a small cinema in, in downtown Tel Aviv. So film was an attraction um, very early on. And then I would put that compounded with my father's um, obsession with information. Um, I know I told you he was a singer, but my father was also a, you know, he was a refugee. He was a German Jewish refugee who fled Germany as a nine-year-old. Then uh, came to Israel, um, joined the Palmach, and, uh, built a culture here, you know, so the country too, but he was a junkie of information. And um, I always said that if you, if you weren't a singer, you were probably a journalist, um, if you didn't end up on stage. As I grew up, he kind of, um, you know, he injected that in me as well. And I was a product of when I was in um, my last year of high school, it was the first Gulf War here. Mm. Uh, and I think that was the moment where I knew I was gravitating towards journalism because, and you have to remember, I'm 48. So we're talking, you know, early 90s. There's no such thing as cell phones. There's no such thing as social media. There's one channel in Israel on TV and only the hotels in Tel Aviv carry um, uh, foreign cable and their CNN. And this is the war also that made CNN. That was also when CNN was still young. Exactly. It was, you know, back in the CNN early days when they called chicken, chicken noodle news the first days. They were the little network that could back at the time. And, and it was the first time, I teach this now, apropos, it was the first time back then um, in the first Gulf War that war was brought to you live into your living rooms. It was literally the first time that that happened. Right. You saw that storytelling. Like exactly. That. Before that, the only live event that you saw was sports, whatnot, that really was brought to you from within Iraq. Um, you know, and you had correspondents there coming out live when it happened. And I remember sitting with my father in the Dan Hotel with a gas mask because I was in 12th grade and, you know, he needed to know what was going on. And he kept telling me, you see that? This is amazing. The world has just changed because if we can be anywhere where something is happening, then big atrocities won't happen. Hmm. I'm doing a dramatic pause yeah. here right now. Dramatic pause. I, if we had video, you'd see, we'd see a, a face to go with it. Exactly. And because you and I know, Nurit, that that's not the case. And I think my father, a product of, of you know, uh, a refugee who had to flee Germany, who fled the Holocaust, and I think carried that with him. He was obsessed with the notion of telling the truth and telling stories as they happen. And and as a young kid, I was very idealistic about journalism because of that. Yeah. And that combined with my love of film kind of directed me towards what I wanted to do, ultimately what I did for the first, I'd say, 15 years of my adult professional career, which was, you know, proper mainstream journalism. Before we, we get more into that, I think, well, first of all, I really connect with what you were saying about, you know, born to two thespians and knew you didn't want to do that, the process of elimination. Because I was curious about that, if you felt pressure, because, you know, for people who don't know, your mother and, and especially your father, I mean, was, a, was almost a cultural icon. I mean, someone really well known. And that can come with a lot of pressure. But I remember myself, my I come from a pretty academic household. My dad's a physicist. My brother's a physicist. And I stood up when I was like five at the table and announced I will be neither a physicist nor a mathematician. <laughs> that's all I knew. And that's it's, it's pretty much all I still know. <laughs> to be I clear, say, I haven't. I haven't clarified further, but I did know that at that age. And it's exactly that. It's the process of elimination. And I think especially when you're growing up with two very dominant um, personalities. And I, by the way, I think academics are very dominant personalities as well. Um, then you have to assert yourself in a way. And the sooner the better. It, it's interesting, I think, though, when we think, 
I don't, I'm not going to be that. I don't want to be the actor. I don't want to be the musician. I don't, I don't want to be whatever it is that your parents are. But no matter what, as you've been talking about, we absorb without even feeling it or, or being conscious of it so much that it's only, I think, a lot of times later in life that we can try to step back and see, wait a minute, how much of my path to X or Y or how much of what I'm drawn to comes from, comes from that, from just... Yeah. you know, what I saw and what I absorbed at home or in my environment. And and not only that, I also think that when, when we become older, we can step back and say, okay, a lot of that comes from my environment, but I can also channel it to something that is me. You know, I can take and reuse it right. and make it mine. And, and I think that's what I've been trying to, I mean, you know me, you and I worked together. Um, I come across as a very external, I remind people in Israel of my parents and, and, not just because I look like them, but because I act like them also. And uh, I realize I am them in many ways. And only after becoming a parent, I think, um, I stopped deeming it as such an awful thing. Um, <laughs> because because, you, because you didn't want your children to one day be ashamed. Um, <laughs> well, first of all, I, I already shame my children in awful ways. My daughter would not, went back when they had school, she wouldn't let me walk her to school. Um, but, and she's eight. Uh, so that came soon. But that said, um, you know, it, we inevitably are part of our, they are part of us and part of our behavior. And I know that I had a lot of, you know, not anger, but I tried to fight it for many, many years. And I think when you make peace with it, you can also use it in, in positive ways, whether channeling it to look, even us journalists in many ways, it's a type of performance, academic perform okay it's 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 all work in front of an audience so we took it and did it in different ways um and it's accepting that and well you said you've been you've been spending all these years kind of trying to make that your own yeah so I want to hear more about that I mean before even jumping to some of the specific things because you said you know it's at 16 you were so into filmmaking then you lived through the Gulf War which is a giant shock for for everyone and then you end up going to the U.S. for film school yeah. in New York. At that time, were you thinking, I want to be a filmmaker? Were you thinking, I'm just going to go to New York and have a good time and then see what happens? Oh, no, 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 no. I, I left the country. I, I wasn't going to come back. No, this is a good dramatic story. When I was, look, I, di- I didn't serve in the military in Israel. Let's start with that. Okay. But I did grow up here. Uh, and, and let me even preface it by saying that I'm also my dad, my father, not just as a singing icon, but my father was in the Palmach. He was like in the, you know, one of the people who fought for this country in underground movements. So the fact that I didn't go to the military, um, even though he accepted it entirely was because, um, at the end of my senior uh, year in high school, my sister was already serving in the military and she's two years older than I am. By the way, my sister nowadays is a doctor of sociology at Tel Aviv University. I'm, I'm alerting you of that just because this story ends up with her going to jail. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> not so often for not doctors so often of sociology, but okay. So she's in the uh, Israeli uh, military and she's actually in a singing group. There is such a thing in the Israeli military, um, and they go and entertain the soldiers. I'm at the time, two years younger, I started getting uh, notifications for my first draft call. Um, and because we grew up overseas, I have languages, I get called to um, uh, army intelligence, but I'm still not in the military. She is serving. Then her military singing group is caught singing, smoking pot. Uh-oh. Okay? This is a true story. There better be. You teach media ethics. I won't accept anything less. Exactly, exactly. 
Now, mind you, she's 18 at the time. She smoked once. You don't do it in the military. We're talking about the years 1987. But it's a big deal. And in that singing troupe were many children of, the daughter of, and the son of. So it gets a lot of media coverage here. My, my parents, by the way, were horrified. Um, they forgave me, but they were horrified. Um, and so I, though, at the time, as I mentioned, 16 and a half, 17, and all of a sudden the Israeli military drops all the, um, uh, all the notices I had to come and basically start a process towards military intelligence. And I ask why. And I am told that my military um, clearance just dropped to zero. Oh, wow. You got to remember, I'm 17 at the time. And it's my sister. Right. You weren't exactly harboring, you know, secrets <laughs> yes. from enemy lands. Or no, 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 no. This is the most ridiculous story we'll ever hear. Anyway, so at the time, I asked for committee for the chief female officer of the army to explain to me, I'm still in the process of enlisting. I'm, you know, I'm in high school. And they explained to me that I will not be able to serve in army intelligence because, and I'm quoting them, if I know secrets and in a moment of weakness, I end up telling them to my sister and she at the moment of weakness ends up smoking with the enemy. Wow. Yeah. As due to translation. That sounded like the most asinine thing to me. And you have to understand. Uh, a problem, a national security problem. A national security problem, basically. Waiting now, to happen. Yeah. At the time, I'm also this, you know, I was in the Israeli uh, youth movement. I'm not going to call it the scouts because it's different. Um, I was I was actively involved in Peace Now. I'm, and I was very active in the, you know, in in the country as a, I'd say, as, as a daughter of my father. But this happens, and I say I'm not going to serve in the military. It's through that. And my father agrees. And I basically, um, because I'm also an American citizen, I kind of put my, we did this process, put my American citizenship forward, and I left the country after high school. So basically, because your sister smoked a joint when she was 18, your entire life path changed. That's exactly what my sister always says to me. She said, you know, if I hadn't done that, <laughs> essentially, video, <laughs> yeah. Look, I moved to New York when I was 18 with nothing, <laughs> And I went to film school and I worked four jobs. One of them was the best in my life to this day. I was a cocktail waitress in the Blue Note. Wow. You can't beat that. I know. I know. I used to live almost next door to there. Before it was a tourist trap too. Yeah. I I worked in the Blue Note for about almost three years. Um, But this is the 90s. Look, this is the early, early 90s. We're also... I wonder if that's what old people do. I always romanticize New York of the early 90s. <laughs> it's in New York that nobody Well, right now you can romanticize anymore. anything in the middle of COVID. Exactly, the bingo. Um, and that's the heartbreaking. So you're working four jobs in film school. In film and- school and right out of film school. Actually, I mean, it sounds like a, it sounds like a film itself. Uh, I tried to get a job coming out of film school. At my last year of film school, I um, one of my jobs was also working in the Diamond District. In on 47th Street, translating papers from German, and I snuck cameras in. And I did this mini documentary. Oh wow! So you already had. I got fired. <laughs> well, so you had, had the director there already. It was starting the filmmaker, documentary maker. I had a direct, was in process. Yeah, and and let me do things that put me in danger is another thing. Um, and so, coming out of film school, I do this mini documentary, and I try to send it around, but nobody's giving me the time of day. And then I uh, remember I came, this is how I got into journalism coming out of film school. It's just a good story. 
um, slightly Cinderella. First, I go to Israel to visit my parents, and it's 94. And Israel and Jordan just signed peace. I'm like, ah, oh, I have an American passport. Sorry, they're about to sign peace. I'm like, let me cross the border before everybody else with my American passport and, and go see what this piece is about. I literally, I just came out of film school. I know nothing politically. I'm 24, you know. But you had that instinct I had, that you could be I, the first I, on the ground in the country. I, I could be the first on the ground. And to be honest, part of it was also knowing I could sell a piece in Israel. Because in Jordan, there was... Um, famous site called Petra, the Red Rock of Petra. And my father has a very famous song about the Red Rock of Petra. Right. So I actually got that trip funded by an Israeli newspaper because I said, look, I'm, I'm going to go see what my father was singing about. And, you know, the Maariv, the Israeli paper was like, yeah. But so I sold it that way to the Israeli paper. And then I sold it to the forward, to the Jewish forward, with a bit of a political twist of what does this peace between Israel and Jordan really mean other than tourism? And then with that article I tried to get into news companies because I figured I want to tell stories in in a documentary way. And I couldn't get arrested, literally. I like nobody returned my calls. <laughs> it was awful. <laughs> At a certain point, because we're Israelis uh, and my parents were horrific at trying to meddle with my life. Like, look, you know what we've heard that there's this former Israeli singer who works at ABC News. I'm not kidding. His name is Shabby, and he really, he worked ENG, he worked the ENG basement. There's an Israeli guy in the basement, he's a former singer yeah, he's a former at ABC, singer. call him. And I was like, Mom, Dad, this is not going to bloody help, okay? And But then, uh, let me just do a little spoiler alert, uh, 12 or so years at ABC News. Yeah, your life. So it worked out. I, I called Shabby, by the way, and Shabby snuck me into the building. I did some research beforehand. I left the article on my resume on the desk of a man by the name of Lionel Chapman, who was the executive producer of a series called 20th Century. This is 1994. And they were looking for researchers who speak German. And I got the job. Wow. Yeah. Great timing. Happened to speak German, good at research. Put your CV on the desk. My first job in journalism to reach was translating all of Hitler's speeches, darling. I'm not kidding. Oh, my. It was awful. I, I called it the, the winter of my <laughs> Well, you know, they talk about in journalism, I know, you know, also from my own experience, you go through the gauntlet, you say thank you, you don't, I mean, you just do whatever you're told for a, a pretty crappy salary, um, but but translating Hitler's on another level. I, I did all of that, but in a small room with little Hitler screen yelling at me. So you are, I mean, well, first of all, I guess so much is about timing and, and you know, how things are aligned Don't you think because so, right? the fact that they were just looking for somebody. I also find that life is about timing in so many ways. I find my marriage is about timing. Sure. You know, I find meeting Odette was about timing, literally. And I was very old when I met my husband. But I, yeah, it's all about timing. Well, I'm, I want to maybe come back to that because, <laughs> yeah, well, that that's the, that's the juicy stuff is the relationship stuff. Right. But I do want to know how, I mean, you went – to being a senior producer, to working in London, in New York, in the Middle East for ABC News. Right. How did you go from a researcher translating Hitler in what I imagine was a dark, small room to some of those jobs? Um, I, I was pushy. I was very pushy. I, I also made it known, first of all, I was an incredibly hard worker. Um, much more so when I was younger, I have to say. That I think I grew up also in a household... A very German household. I mean, I have a work ethic of, of, I know my parents are thespians, but my mother is, wow. So I think it's work ethic and a, a lot of um, an ambition. 
you know, that word that is so awful to say as a woman, I'm quoting him Reese Witherspoon. Uh, but ambition, I had ambition. Were there ever times you felt along the way that you didn't belong or that you're, you know, that, that kind of fake it till you're, you make it kind of thing? Constantly, or were you just full speed ahead? Constantly. I think anybody who tells me, first of all, I think all of us, I think every person around there, out there, who is not walking around with an imposter syndrome is not, is not normal. I, I don't know. Um, my God, we're such a bundle of, and, and again, I don't, I'm going to say something so horrifically condescending as a mother. I've learned it only after having children and watching my children as little beings in, in, in situation and realizing that we, we carry that through life. Um, and it's the beauty of it also. So yes, um, I think my first several years at ABC, my God, a lot of it was, look, I knew I had something that was right for that time. And you and I are speaking right now in the Middle East currently, doesn't really interest American media. But I'm talking about the years before 9-11. 9-11 really changed, flipped the world, flipped American media um, on its head when it comes to what interests um, the news. But back in the early 90s, the Middle East was, look, I got to work with Peter Jennings. He was Middle East obsessed. I use the fact that I came from the- What a mentor also, what a person to learn from. Amazing. And then after that, I have to say, you know, there are things after that that you don't need to do. When you work with people that you realize that I've learned so much from them, that's the type of journalism I know I want to do. And you and I can talk about it forever. Yeah. Um, and you know, if that doesn't exist, I, you know, I, I have to find and invent my own thing. Uh, but back to, you know, those days. So it was Middle East obsessed. And I used the fact that I came from this region. I spoke languages, you know, I had the languages that they needed at the time. And I loved what I did. I really, I was very much believed in what I did to me. Journalism wasn't just, it was really, you know, the idealism of the whole idea behind free speech and free press. And I can't believe, you know, I'm talking about it in, in these days. Those are the things that are going to make me cry. But yeah. Yeah. Well, I, that's not my goal overall in this podcast. Good, just, At least not, 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 a, not on a, the death of journalism, yeah, maybe you. on something else. So, <laughs> uh, along the way also, I mean, you're talking about working hard, being ambitious, loving what you do. Those are all, I think, really key factors for anybody to succeed. This industry, for those who haven't spent time in it, like many others, but it can be really rough. It can be very competitive, uh, very unpleasant. Lots, you know, there's lots of, can be lots of inter- internal drama. Through that process, I mean, through rising through the ranks at ABC News, kind of learn how to stand up for yourself more, how to be heard. You know what I yes, mean? Yes. Yes. And I also had, <sighs> I was lucky enough, I'm going to say it in a, in a weird way, because you have to understand, I worked at ABC News through the Mark Halpern years. I, I have no problem saying, you know, all these men that afterwards in the, you know, in the second, in the early 2000s came out through the Me Too process. And nobody ever tried approach, to approach me. And I think it's the Israeli in me. So I was lucky in that respect. I also used the fact that they found me exotic, you know, to American Jews, to New Yorkers, especially. I was the super Jew. You know, I'd get, oh, my, what are you doing for Yom Kippur? And, like, I, and I'm Israeli. You know me. I'm like, I don't know. Ordering Chinese. <laughs> <laughs> the, the day of fast. Uh, the day of fast. Exactly. The day of fast. And, and, and I knew how to use things. And I say proudly too, 
ABC got what they needed from me at a time where that story was very um, important. And, and don't get me wrong, I was also great on other stuff. At the end of the day, I when I quit ABC, they wanted me at the time to be the executive producer of Good Morning America Weekend. Wow. Sorry, the senior broadcast producer. Big job. Like, Big job, exactly, you know. And I... I was done, but I'll get to it how I was done. And, and I know yes. what happened there. And it wasn't really journalism. It was the death of my father um, that propelled me to make also big decisions in life. So, you know. I think it's an, there's an important thing in what you're saying, though, which is that it's, it's not a thing to shy away from, to be ashamed of. And it's rather a thing that we should be doing is to look at our advantages in a much more, in, on, through a, maybe a broader lens you know, what makes me stand out in ways that aren't necessarily the obvious on the resume kind of ways and to use that and, and to use it proudly and to not, you know, because it's what makes you, you and entirely. And I, I it, it drives me nuts. As if you, if we were, if you were a man, you and I would not be having, if we were men, we wouldn't be having true. this conversation. That's probably true. <laughs> I would just ask you about the achievements and stuff and, and move on. exactly like I, I hate it seriously when we need to be ashamed. And I think it's getting less and less for being ambitious for, you know, knowing how to operate in an environment, knowing how to, invest time. It's not just because we work hard. That means that you're talented if you're advanced and talent is something that we assist. It's not, you know, a miraculous thing that shines upon me from, you know, with the light of God. It's, it's, and we only have these conversations as, as women. Yeah. We literally do um, because they make us feel the feminist is going to come out. Uh, let me just suffice it to say, we don't need let her. To, yeah. We don't need to be ashamed of it. You know, and yeah. it's important, though, I think one way or another, the conversations are happening because a lot of people feel that way, whether it's an imposter syndrome or a fear of standing, standing up, you know, and, and making a lot of noise, so to speak, work wise, you know, making yourself very heard or something. I mean, one of my my first jobs uh, in journalism, really, my first job was at CBS News at the CBS Evening News. And I remember my boss then told me at some point, he said, you know what, you're really good at just getting everything done and sort of buzzing around, but nobody even knows you were there. Like, you just, everything gets done. And that wasn't exactly a compliment. You know what I mean? That's the kind of thing. It, it's about learning to say, hey, I did this. I'm responsible for this, you know, product achievement, whatever it is. Raise it. Hey, I'm here, you know, Raise it. yeah, it doesn't know, come it, naturally to everyone. It doesn't come naturally to everyone. I think it comes less naturally to women. I really do. Uh, I've seen so many incidents through the nineties. I have to say of men stealing women's credits. Yep. Um, I would even call the phenomena through the nineties in the media world. I saw it several times. And I, and again, I don't think men are having this conversations and I think we are you know, we've been conditioned as women to um, what you described, the woman behind him, you know, and that's how we sometimes walk through life. Yeah. And yes, you need to be heard. And I think, but I, I do think it's getting better. No, I got to tell you. Yeah, I do. I agree for sure. I think it's getting better. And I think even, you know, through the changes we think we're seeing throughout the world, it's a lot of uh, the old world battling the new world in many, many ways. Well, at the risk of taking up your, your whole night, let me jump into something you mentioned, um, You're not. which is 9-11. I mean, you, you end up spending many of these years at ABC News in the Middle East covering some massive stories. And one of them, you happen, from what I, I remember, you happen to be in, in New York for a little period of time for ABC News when 9-11 happens. I mean, so many years later, how do you, how do you reflect on that? I mean, do, did that affect your your career, the way you saw what it is you do? 
Oh, yes. It changed my entire life. I mean, certainly it, it ended up sending you life. to the Middle East. But I mean, even the experience, such a dramatic experience itself. Okay, I mean, first of all, I remember, I remember September 10th, 2011 so well. I remember the night before so well because it was such a beautiful – I was in New York by mistake. I, I was living in London at the time for ABC News. Never mind, came in to replace somebody. And I walked down um, uh, Columbus Avenue with my friend Margo, who uh, – Margo Baumgart. Um, she was a senior producer at ABC News for years. And we just had this amazing – Bloomberg was going to run for mayor. <laughs> um, the birds were chirping. <laughs> exactly. And <laughs> yeah, Bloomberg was going to run for mayor. I remember Margaret asked me, you think you can win? I was like, yeah. Um, but it, New York was just great. And I remember loving my life in London. I remember the fact that I really enjoyed that I was there only for a little while because I had a great job in London. I was the Good Morning America producer for In London in Charge of Africa. Europe and the Middle East. I and I was twenty eight. I flew everywhere. That is quite it, quite it a great. job. Amazing, I, especially no, at that I age. I loved my life. Yeah, you know, I loved my life at the time. We're twenty nine. Uh, and so, on September tenth, two thousand and one, you loved your life. So, so September tenth, yeah, loved my life. And then September eleventh happened, and I remember standing in the control room and watching the first building fall. And remember, we were, I was a Good Morning America producer. I, was, I happened to be in the control. So we, we saw the whole thing. It was awful. But I remember when the first building fell. And I remember that thought crossing my mind with so many phones and a headset. And I remember thinking, the world will never be the same. No, the realization. Just that flash of a moment. Not about workers. The world will never be the same. It's like, a sh damn, everything has just changed. Everything has just changed. And it did flip my life. I don't think I would have left the States, and I left a few years later, I left in 2006, had I not seen up close and personal the war in Iraq and all of it happening parallel to my father's dying. That was kind of a perfect storm. Um, when when were you sent to Iraq for the first time? When did you start covering the wars? I mean, was it in 2003, oh right, at the, right at the beginning? I was the whole, the whole ride. First of all, I ended up in Afghanistan right after, several months after 9-11. When did they go in? October. Uh, but that was like a very short work trip. Then they sent me to London, the whole run-up to the war. I did between London and Israel. You have to remember Israel was also a spot. We were sending teams everywhere because back in the first Gulf War, when I'm in 12th grade, um, Saddam was scudding Tel Aviv. So everybody was thinking that might happen again. They want you know me there. Right. So actually, the uh, start of the war I did in Jerusalem, that was March 2003. And then by um, by about a month after the statue, I was sent to Iraq after the statue fell. And I started rotating in and out for several months. Um, so between the end of 2003 and 2005. And I asked for it. But I have to tell you, it wasn't just as a journalist. I asked for it because my father was very sick. And it was... It was an escape of some sort? No, it was closer to get to Tel Aviv. Oh, to, to get to Israel. To get to Israel. All through those years, my father was in and out of hospitals. And um, I kept asking for assignments that brought me closer to that. So you're covering the, the world changing in and out of wars in Iraq and Afghanistan yeah. with stints going back home to see your father in hospital. I mean, I want to ask, what did that take? But 
I, I, I can't imagine. I guess that's a big question. Xanax, no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, no, look, it was awful. I was also... And, the American uh, answer. Yeah, no, the American Prescription answer. drugs, of course. <laughs> no, I guess so. That was an awful time. Um, I, I'm, I'm thinking of how long ago it was. I was also in a terrible relationship at the time. Just to when add... I say it was a perfect storm. Yeah, I was in... I remember when my father passed away... Let me tell you. What year was that? 2004, June 2004. Right in the middle of right in the middle of all of, of the war coverage. I, and yeah, I started to, I started to fall apart. I didn't stop operating or working or functioning. Everything I believed in started to fall apart because the reason I became a journalist in many ways. And um, oh my God, my father. I was first of all, I was very very close to him. And I think when you lose a parent, and I don't wish it on anyone, it it changes. There's nothing I, that I'm going to say that's not going to sound incredibly cliched and naive. Well, if it's true, that's, I mean, that's why cliches are cliches, usually because they're true. You become an orphan. You become an orphan. Yeah. And, um, and that's how you felt. Yeah. I, I felt like an orphan and like everything I believed in fell, fell apart. First, look, he's dying and I'm seeing... People don't remember this. I was sent into Iraq. Our first journalist, when we went in, we were looking for weapons of mass destruction for six months. Yeah. We were literally looking for weapons of Physically. mass destruction. Physically. Where are they? Physically. Yes. With troops. And then those are not found. And um, and then we see the entire And this military. is at the time, sorry to stop you, this, this is when there was still no questioning of the fact that they were there somewhere. It was just a process of, Thank you. of looking. Thank you. And you have to remember, that was the whole reason for the war. Sure. That's, that was the whole reason for the war. That's how we in the media pushed the war. That was the whole reason for the war. So six months into when they don't find them, and nobody stands up and says, okay, that was a lie. That happens only a few years later. But I'm in Baghdad, <laughs> and everything is blowing up. And everything was blowing up. And I was like, my God, what am I doing? Life is so short. What a powerful um, confluence of factors that actually your father, whose own obsession and search for truth was such a big part of why you got into this in the first place, passes away just as you are in that field and feel like truth is, is getting lost. It's getting lost. Um, after he passed away, I, I stopped volunteering to Iraq and they started sending me. I was really good in big productions. I did the Olympics in Greece at the end of 2004, and then I find myself in Katrina. Oh, wow. Um, you, you thought you'd have a little relaxing break after Iraq and, and no, head over to I, Hurricane I was, Katrina. I was, <laughs> or were you searching? Were you actively searching for the, for the chaos? I was very you know? good at it. It was awful. Beyond I, being I, good I, at it, though, did, I mean, you were clearly excellent at it, but did you enjoy it? Did, is I, I think is I that where you wanted it. to be? No, I, I, enjoy, I enjoyed it, and... I, you know, we can, I, I went to many old shrinks, one can say, to try and figure out if I'm the, you know, the son my father never had. And yes, of course, I went through that phase. I think I was, you have to remember also, I grew up in an Israel that was, I don't think people realize how war was part and parcel of my life. You know, I was a year old when the Yom Kippur War happened. My father disappeared for 10 days. I'm talking about energy of memories that's in a house. I remember the second Lebanon, sorry, the first Lebanon war, we left the country because my parents were so opposed to Israel's invasion to Lebanon. I, it was always part of who I was. Um, and, you know, we don't have three hours. And at the end of the, the story, I crack and I 
realize that I can't cover war anymore. Um, that there's, you know, every bullet has an address and I have to stop. Every bullet has and an address. And here I'm covering demonstrations. And then my second phrase to it was also that I shouldn't travel to it all the time to that address. <laughs> Don't travel to the bullet. To the bullet home. Yeah. I mean, how difficult was it to walk away? Because we're talking about a very established position at a major network in the time. I mean, before and this was all nonstop was. cable yeah. was a thing. I mean, this was the biggest, the biggest place, the biggest job yeah. in broadcasting. And, uh, was I, it I, tough to say I'm done? No, because I think my last, my last year there, and this happens to me in many places I work at. I and I tend to stay very long where I'm at usually, and then I always end up staying one year too long. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of us do that. I think yeah, I do too. And I felt that way. Until, with until you really process, okay, it's time to go. Yeah. Like you have to understand, Katrina, after Iraq, Katrina broke me because I saw so much violence in the streets of America. And, you know, in Katrina, I, I kept calling my father's old self. He was dead already. And I kept leaving him messages. And I had nobody to speak with. And I realized I need to be close to a place that reminds me of him. And I had been so, and my mother was already getting older, and I had promised myself that I wasn't going to do that again. I, I wasn't going to be that far away again. So you walk away from this to a very different lifestyle yeah. after Afghanistan, Iraq, Hurricane Katrina, 9-11. I mean, all of these massive events to settle down, so to speak. I mean, at least, you know, in one form of the word. And I want to fast forward a little bit to how kids changed your trajectory because you have two kids yeah. and despite the messaging that we can have a hundred percent of it all and you can do it all and blah, blah, blah. Oh, but yes. it's yeah. obviously maybe not at all at the same time, first of all, and it's obviously a life changing shift too. Yeah. So how, how do you feel like today now looking at it? First of all, I got to tell you, I, there are people in New York. Um, I think maybe those who went with me to film school who hear that I have children and go, what? Um, <laughs> you? <laughs> Those who worked with me at ABC call this version your L two point zero because it's just and and I can imagine there's the crowd who knows you from the blue note exactly. serving whiskey and, and can't believe it, and then there's the crowd who knows you in a flak jacket in Baghdad and doesn't. And get there are it. pictures of me up until the age of thirty eight. You, you don't have a picture of me without a cigarette in my hand. Um, how did that happen? I did not even your first. Walk. Your first you had at thirty nine, right? I, first, I had Leah at 39. Actually, I, I got pregnant when I was 39. When she was born, I was already 40. And Omar, I was 42. And it's the best. I'm so glad I got to have those children. I didn't think it was going to happen, to be honest. I had already given up. There was, I didn't want to have kids up until the age of 36, to be honest. And then at the age of 36, I wanted nothing but kids. And <laughs> But I was single. I, I think that's a pretty common yeah, story, actually. Exactly. The sudden, sudden and by flip. the age of thirty-eight, I was like, "Okay, you're not going to have kids." Um, and then I met my husband, and all he wanted was kids. Yeah, no, good no, timing, good timing, very good timing. How did it change it? It gave me so much more courage than I ever had in. And you're speaking to somebody who was at Saddam's bloody hole, okay? And I think the fact that um, I mean, it's twofold. First, you know, I don't care how it sounds, but I'm going to say it. The fact that my body could create another human being blew me away. And I only realized it after Leah was born. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> this. I love that, though. I, I, I want to just, like, repeat that because I love that you were in these 
these places and you saw things and the the sort of lowest depths of humanity that almost nobody gets to see and in such danger i mean really such extreme experiences for so many years but then you know it's actually pregnancy and having that experience that snaps you out in a certain way i think it saved me because at the end of look i stopped traveling in wars it was about 14 years straight almost yes my god uh, because after abc i become you know I, i joined sky news for seven years so and that was insanity but so Tahrir was the last the last place I went to and I came back completely broken from Tahrir in Egypt in Egypt I was it was Haiti and Tahrir and I I was I I was a mess of a human being who really thought everything was death and destruction and I left sky because of that because I really couldn't sleep at night and and I was afraid of becoming I couldn't sit with people who didn't do what I did yeah it's such and a I started calling them civilians exactly <laughs> And I wanted to be part of life. Uh, so first I left and I wrote a book and then I met Oded. And then, but the courage that I got was for my ha- having my first child. And after Leah, I have to tell you, I, I never thought I would manage to create two. Look, I made, I directed two independent films along with my husband who edits. Each one was like having a child, but they were the purest form of telling a story which is what I was looking for ultimately in journalism as it shifted around me. Yeah. And it's really full circle thinking how you started out at 16 and you know, what you had in mind originally. Exactly. And, and, and look, I, the type of journalism I want to practice, first of all, I don't think it exists anymore and I'm not mourning it. I think it had its place and I think we're in a transformation phase. I really do. I think once some old, you know, platforms go their way, and I really think we're in a transformation phase in many ways, also in the way we share information. But having the courage to do my own thing, if it's films, if it's writing, um, it's my children. I think that's great that actually you have these two sequences that have that seem similar. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but from what you're saying, you know, this whole, these 12 years at ABC News where eventually you say you pulled yourself out because you were done with chasing bullets and then several more really intense years also covering all kinds of stories like this at Sky. Also, pull yourself out. Like you get sucked into this vortex every time. Yeah. Pull yourself out. But it was, I guess it sounds like having your kids that really allowed yourself to stay out and just do what it is you wanted to do. I'm going to start crying, but you reminded me of a line my father said to me when I was very young. Um, and I'll say it in Hebrew and then I'll translate it. Because what you described just now, one of the things I miss most about my father, that he could solve, you know, a 30-minute monologue of me complaining with one sentence that just... Cut through it. He was like, oh, exactly. And I remember describing some situation to him once, and he said to me, And that means, you don't swim in a puddle. You get out of it. And I know that I have those moments in places where I know, okay, I got to get out of it. This is now a puddle. I'm, I'm going to move on now. And a lot of times that that's so great because so many times we all do try to swim and we fight it and it feels like it's, you know, it's much harder than it should be. And you're going against something against the grain, but you say, I'm already in this puddle. I got to keep going. I'm going to get out of it when it's actually so simple to just say, you know what, wait a second. I don't have to be here. I believe in movement. And I also think that our desires and what we create or what we say or the stories that we write they change as we grow. As you know, we're all different than our 20s. We're different than our 30s. I'm different than what I was before I had my children. 
Um, I could not make a film about my father before I became a mother. Uh, I mean, there are things that need to happen. And I think the smarter people in life, and maybe that's not the right way of calling it, is people who know how to get out of puddles because life is about moving forward. It's about moving all the way straight to the ocean. And that's where you accumulate your experiences. Well, I wanted to ask you sort of what you would maybe tell your 20-year-old self today, but I th- I feel like that might be the best part of it. Just listen to your dad and get out of the puddles. Yeah. I don't know. Um, it's that. And I, look, I found myself telling Leah the other day, because um, I keep quoting my father, um, and it's, God, I'm becoming one of these people. Uh, but another monologue, 30-minute monologue of me complaining. I remember I came uh, visiting from film school back when I was in New York. Um, and I remember the crisis I was going through and we're sitting on the balcony in Tel Aviv. This is wrong, and this is wrong, and this is wrong. And my father looked at me very tired. He said, yeah, Ellie, life is hard, but it's interesting. <laughs> that was <laughs> Great. So... Um, Shut you up real quick. Yeah, entirely. And it is. Look, it's interesting. Because who wants it to be boring? Exactly. Too. I mean, you know, it's always going to be hard. Might as well be interesting. Bingo. Bingo. And I think living in Corona times, we're going to talk about that. Um, But um, I I am going to check on those two children I had because I'm hearing one of them banging. (laughs) I well, I'll, I'll let you. I guess you probably locked him in a closet for this. I'll let you let him out. And look, German education. Just no. kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> but you are amazing. I will. I will release you. I could talk to you forever. Thank you so much for for taking an hour of your life to go way back with me and dig in all kinds of places. Um, this was so 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 much fun. I want to do it also over coffee. Yeah. Um, in so real I'm life. I'll oh, speak to you soon. Thanks so much, yeah. Thanks so much for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe and send us your thoughts, any questions that you want answered or women you'd like to hear from. Write us on Twitter at Nareet Ben or Instagram at Life Deconstructed Pod. And hold on, here's a peek at next week's episode. We'll talk to Colonel Miri Eisen. She spent 20 years in the military, always the only woman in the room and the very first woman to do her job. She reflects on the biggest mistake she ever made and how her definition of success has changed dramatically. I think that what I've learned is that you can succeed without that sense that you didn't arrive where you expected to be. And for me, success today is in that wandering motion that I can flow and feel comfortable with all of the different things that I'm doing. I'm Nuri Ben. We'll see you next week on Life Deconstructed.